The Halftone is brought to you by Haywire Press, presenting signed, deluxe, and limited edition books from photographer Lee Friedlander. Haywire carries dozens of books by Friedlander available from his personal archive. From new titles, Western Landscapes in the Human Clay, to early work like Self-Portrait in the American Monument, the Haywire catalog spans Friedlander's entire career. Included are signed trade editions, as well as deluxe, limited editions, featuring elaborate bindings, photogravures, or gelatin silver prints. To browse the catalog, visit haywirepress.com. Haywire is currently offering a special discount for Halftone listeners. Enter the offer code HALFTONE at checkout to receive 10% off your next purchase. That's H-A-L-F-T-O-N-E. Visit haywirepress.com. Hi everyone, I'm Eric Marth and welcome to The Halftone, my chance to visit with photographers to talk with them about what they do. On today's show, my guest is Andrea Modica. Modica is known for her long-term projects like Treadwell and Fountain, in which she formed close relationships with her subjects and made photographs with their collaboration over the course of about a decade. In other projects, picturing minor league baseball players in Oneonta, New York, photographing the remains of human skulls discovered near a hospital in Colorado, And in commissions for a long list of editorial clients, her devotion to large-format portraiture has remained constant throughout her career. Modica's books include Human Being, Fountain, and Treadwell, as well as the recent title As We Wait, a collaboration with photographer Larry Fink. I recently met with Andrea at her home in Philadelphia to talk about her work and career. We were seated beside a wall covered in photographs, many by her friends and mentors like Sally Mann, Lois Connor, Helen Levitt, and Mary Ellen Mark. So here it is, my conversation with Andrea Modica. I'm curious to know where you grew up. I grew up in Brooklyn. Which which part? Bay Ridge. See, there are people who know every piece of Brooklyn mm. and can say, "Oh, Bay Ridge, of course," but I, 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 I have I, no idea. We are on the uh, we're on the uh, Brooklyn side of the Arizona Narrows Bridge. In okay. fact, right yeah. practically under that bridge. And in fact, I did many things for the first time, literally <laughs> um, under that bridge. Care to share? Or just I leave think it at that? that yeah. any person who lived through teenage <laughs> years could teenage. put two and two together. Sure, sure. And what did your family do in Bay Ridge? Um, my uh, father was a lawyer and my da- my mom was a pianist. And uh, were they Brooklyn natives as well? My father grew up uh, on the Lower East Side. Uh, his family could have come right out of... Jacob Reese and Louis Hines pictures, immigrants, and my mom, uh, also her family, uh, they also immigrated from uh, Italy, uh, but uh, did go straight to Brooklyn. They skipped the Lower East Side somehow. How was, what was Brooklyn like then when you were a kid? Uh, Very, I have, very different from what it's like now, of course. Um, Very ethnic. I lived in a neighborhood that was Italian and Irish, very Catholic. Kids playing on the streets, um, you know, families sitting outside every night. Uh, very much, uh, I was raised uh, by the neighbors uh, as much as my parents. Yeah. Um, Is it like like Helen Levitt pictures? Yes, perhaps. Uh, hmm. Hmm. Again, hers were different neighborhood. 
Different neighborhood. Different, different time, different but neighborhood. That sense but, of community, yeah, which yeah. Uh, and familial community, which I don't know if it exists so much now. Uh, let's see. You know, the children of immigrants and a very, very strong sense of uh, where, you know, our families came from and, and an identity yeah, as yeah. such. Um, and then, uh, you know, the, the great thing about growing up in Brooklyn is that as soon as I could take a train into New York at about, I don't know, 13, 14 years old, mm -hmm. uh, I was tied to the great art culture uh, and the museums, and I, you know, frequented the galleries, and I became very early on enamored with um, conceptual art, which may have been somewhat tied to the things I was doing under the Verrazano Narrows Bridge. <laughs> uh, and so I was, uh, you know, very dreamily sitting in front of, a, a, I don't know, a minimalist painting at the MoMA, writing pages in my journal. So that was my first love in visual art, painting in particular. You have an interest in painting from venturing to the museums. I mean, how was it that you were you were drawn there? Was to the that museums. Just, yeah, I mean, was it something like, were you taken by a friend? Were you, did no, you... it's an old it's an old and important story. I had a high school teacher yeah, who yeah. Uh, who encouraged uh, us to to do that to take advantage of the fact that we were so close. To the best stuff there is. Yeah, and then I, uh, in fact, I got a, a small scholarship for what was then the Brooklyn Museum Art School. And then I met more teachers who inspired me there. And I was, I think I was 14 when that happened. And it was the summer between probably freshman and sophomore year in high school. And I was uh, introduced to sculpture and uh I was still very, very much interested in uh, media outside of photography. Uh, I liked anything that um, was very process-oriented, like printmaking, etchings. And then I continued at the Brooklyn Museum Art School, uh, trading, um, actually took care of the print lab uh, and, and, and in that way, and did a little bit of modeling for a sculpture class. Uh, took classes in exchange. When you finished high school, after taking these classes and, and being being interested in art making, uh, where did you head from there? Oh, I went to SUNY Purchase. Yeah. Wanted to get out of New York City. Yeah. And uh, there I discovered photography. I went there for painting, and I discovered photography taking an elective. A, a sort of introduction? Yeah. Yeah. 35 millimeter. And then yeah, shortly yeah. thereafter, I, I mean, maybe the next sec, you know, the next semester, I mm -hmm. picked up a view camera and I never went back to the small camera. Yeah. Yeah. So how was it that you picked up a view camera? Well, there's a, there was a, um, incredible t teacher and photographer, Jed Devine. I'm sure you know who he is. I don't actually. Fantastic artist. He just retired and devoted teacher. And, uh, he, uh, was making platinum prints. Yeah. So he was offering classes in platinum prints, as I do at Drexel. Yeah. And uh, it was just in the air. So I, I learned that. And you had to, uh, in those days, of course, in order to make a big negative, well, that's not true. There was film for making duplicates, but uh, for enlarging negs. Um, but primarily, you would use a big camera. So what I really fell in love with, which I've never 
lost my interest uh, and is uh, using the big camera. That was the thing that, yeah. that got me. And then, uh, you know, shooting with the big camera, processing film, waiting for the nags to dry, looking at them with a light bulb, you know, while they're still dripping in chemistry, uh, right, waiting for them to dry, making proofs, deciding if something was worth printing in platinum. You know, that all of those stages, uh, not, not to mention the, the stage of making the picture and, and having a big camera you know, between you and whatever it is you're photographing, yeah. a person or a tree or a rock, whatever it is, um, that that passion started there. And that's the photography I fell in love with, that I remain. I, I, it is, it is what gets yeah. me out of bed in the morning, yeah. Yeah. You know, grabbing the big camera. I uh, started photographing with the, with the 8x10. I started photographing people almost immediately, people who I knew, people who I loved, people who were available, my best friend, my boyfriend. And what was notable and even alarming was that uh, the product, the photograph, uh, did not resemble the person I was photographing, uh, sometimes not even physically. But the story that was being told, the person that was being described, the narrative was different from the person in the world. But it was a photograph, so it still looked believable. It still looked like it was a person, and that person was, you know, existed in the world. The person in the photograph existed in the world. So that transition that happens through the process of shooting with a big camera, that's the thing that got me. Yeah. And then on top of it, all those physical things I talked about in processing yeah, yeah, the film yeah. uh, and making a handmade print, standing on my feet, you know, making a print in a darkened room uh, where nobody could enter, that's something that remains important to me. That's the way I like to live my life. Um, but it's this other thing that is really more important. It's the most important part. And that's the part that seems to me can't really be replaced in any other way. I guess you could have a giant digital camera. But um, people, you know, certainly react differently to a big camera. And as a practitioner, I behave differently and I make different choices mm -hmm. using a big camera. And that I understood right out of the gate. And I was shocked by that. And I continue to be shocked sometimes uh, by uh, the results of a photo shoot because I may be at that shoot. Uh, I am at that shoot, obviously. Yeah, yeah. And there may be a different, um, something else is going on between me and the subject. Let's say it's a person. There might be a conversation or maybe that person is wonderful or belligerent or or nasty or uh, loving or something uh, that feeds my memory of the process of making the picture but is not present in the picture itself or the opposite. So I realize this is a bit repetitive. However, this is the most important part of using the big camera for me, and it's the thing that, again, I haven't been able to replace in any other, yeah, yeah. Uh, with any other camera, and I've certainly used others, and I continue to use others. You know, there's also something in those early years tied to uh, making uh, etchings, making uh, lithographs, making prints, 
that uh, that 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 photography, uh, you know, using a big camera, was the closest thing to that, uh, rather than using a small camera. Yeah, there's yeah. certainly a magic to using a small camera, uh, which didn't interest me as a practitioner, but certainly as a viewer, it yeah. does. Yeah. What were some of your early projects as a student? Well, they're actually not very different from some of the things I pursue now. I had to pick a senior thesis mm -hmm. project, as our students do at Drexel, yeah. and uh, I decided to photograph the women in my family. And I did it for very personal reasons, which are not in the finished product. But again, the process was was important, and I I still have this philosophy, I guess, of photographing. Um, going where I want to go with the camera, because if I don't get a good picture, well, at least I'm where I want to be. Uh, and uh, sometimes that place is a place which is very stressful and fraught with uncertainty, and I don't know why I'm drawn to that place, and sometimes that's just a place of just happiness and warmth. Uh, and sometimes, uh, but, but most of the times it's a confusing place. So I chose to photograph the women in my family because I was brought up to marry and have children. Yeah. And college was fine for a woman, because, and in fact, necessary in my family. My family used education in America to get out of poverty and to create lives that were fulfilling and um, also um, create a, a life uh, work which was, was able to contribute something to society. Sure, sure. So so education for education's sake made sense in my family, but also for a woman in particular, this is going to sound wildly old-fashioned, which even in its day it was, uh, so that uh, we could then help our children, you know, go through school and, yeah. and create lives that were fulfilling. So it wasn't necessarily about getting a job, which... Education has become much more about that now. I see a vast change in my 30 years of teaching. So I was able to choose to do whatever I wanted with this idea that, you know, I would be whisked away and taken care of anyway by somebody who got an education that would provide a decent income. Um, so art was fine for me, certainly not for my brother, by the way, who would, I think, have, you know, he might have enjoyed a life in film, but he became a doctor. Hmm. So um, I kind of got this, this feeling that I wasn't going to follow through with that plan for, yeah. for, for myself. So I wanted to kind of grab the bull by the horns and look closely at the women in my family uh, of all generations, including, you know, the girls, the, the next generation. Um, so I, I took my 8 by 10 uh, or the schools eight by ten, and uh, t took trains and buses and bicycle everywhere I could to visit all the women and girls in my family, who were you know still pretty much clustered in the Northeast. So uh, I, I th that was my project, and I got to spend time with them and you know look face to face with people who made those choices, yeah. uh, and those who deviated. Uh, and became professionals, and the next generation uh, who were being raised in a variety of ways with 
a variety of uh, paths being encouraged. So your path after after this um, undergraduate stint was to continue photography, yeah? Well, the, I, I was not going to be able to live without that. Yeah. That's for sure. And uh, professionally, I, you know, I, I knew that I would have to figure out a way to make a living, um, but making pictures the way I wanted to make pictures for me, first and foremost, uh, that was, that had become necessary, as necessary as food and air. So where did you head for graduate school? And, well, maybe before uh, I asked that, where were you looking to go before you decided on a particular place or a particular path? Well, I wasn't convinced I was going to go to graduate school. I uh, spent some time living with, uh, this is such a hippie thing to do, but, uh, you know, it's different times with a group of people in a house. Maybe it's exactly what people are doing now in Brooklyn. Uh, to, uh, you know, I worked at a psychiatric halfway house. I worked nights, so my daytime, my light hours were available to take pictures. Uh, and we, we shared a house, and I built a little dark room in our spare bathroom, and uh, I did that for a year. And I decided to apply to graduate school to study with Richard Benson. Yeah. Uh, and I would have gone anywhere that he was teaching because of his um, his interest and his, his knowledge of printmaking. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so he taught at one place, and that was Yale. Now, and how, that was the only place I applied. Yeah. Oh, wow. How, how did you know about Richard Benson? From Jed Devine. Okay. And Jed, Jed said, if you're going to go, if the, he actually said to me, if you are going to continue with this printing process, yeah. he said, you need to find this person. And this person is at Yale. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I had decided if I didn't get into Yale, I would, you know, just do something else. Well, I would be a photographer. Yeah. Continue I on. Wouldn't, I, I didn't could. think I, I, I would uh, apply to another program because I wasn't necessarily interested in getting a master's. I just want to study with him. Yeah. So you get in. Mm. Yeah. Um, Remarkable. <laughs> how was how was your interview? What were interviews oh like back then? <laughs> <laughs> how many decades ago? I'll tell you one thing. Uh, I remember being asked by Todd. Who are your influences in photography? Mm -hmm. And I, oh my goodness, had almost none because I was so mad about taking pictures that I wasn't spending any time looking at other photographers. Um, so I, I, I really, um, I choked. Yeah. And he said, well, that's okay because, you know, People come to school here to learn that stuff. <laughs> so that so that was a very generous response to yeah, my choking, yeah. and I'm grateful to that. But, you know, what was I, 22 years old? I mean, it was wildly intimidating. Well, you know, the students are present, yeah. as you recall. Oh, yeah, I remember. <laughs> and Richard was there, who I, you know, still think is you know, at the right hand of God. So there you have it. So what, I, I guess, did you get what you wanted going to Yale to, uh, to learn from, from the platinum man? 
<laughs> yeah, I got, I got much more. I got much more because uh, there was that, of course, and that was, you know, more than I could have imagined. He's so generous and uh, knowledgeable. But I also, uh, you know, learned about other photographers. And I also probably the most important thing that happened for me in that program is that, um, well, I call it the EST training of photography, not too many people your age will get that reference, but there was this system of building people's confidence where you broke them down, mm. and it's the kind of you are crap method of teaching. Yeah. At least I felt that. I don't know that every student felt that. Um, and uh, basically, you know, whatever you do can be better. That was the message. And I, I you know, it, it was not a happy way of living, um, but it really set a standard that I've carried with me forever. And for better, for worse, I, I try to pass that on to my students. Um, I've over the years learned how to be a happier person and still be able to do that. Yeah. It was, that was a, that was a hard, that was a hard lesson to learn. You know, how do you incorporate those kinds of high standards with your work and still manage to like yourself um, and, uh, yeah, that's a daily practice, but I, uh, I, I, and I do think I'm considered a fairly tough teacher, but I think that it's, you know, it was the best thing I took away from that program. Yeah, that's interesting. That's one of the things that I've sort of consistently anecdotally heard about Yale is that it can be rough when it comes to the crit. Mm. Um, there can be some, some beaten up on you. <laughs> yes, but, you know, the thing that uh, in those days, I, of course, I, I'm going there, by the way, on, um, I'm going there on Monday, so I'll, I'll be able to see what's going on now. But uh, with those fellows, uh, and they were mostly men, um, there was always a woman teaching there. I wish there were more. Um, there, they, they, no comment was made about a photograph, by and large, that wasn't substantiated. Uh, we didn't really... We really weren't able to talk about anything that we couldn't point to. And I, I, to me, this is fantastic because we are visual artists yeah. in the yeah. beginning and the end. And, uh, you know, if we hadn't had an idea about what the picture was about, nobody really wanted to hear about it yeah. unless it was in the picture. And, and this really very much ties back to the thing I said that I loved most about photography, which I mm -hmm. discovered in college, mm -hmm. which is that, you know, what we're creating is a fiction. It's not the truth. Um, it's ironic because I went on to do a lot of editorial work, which was supposedly, you know, presenting. The real a, thing. Yeah, some kind of story. Uh, and also I teach at the ICP and I teach photojournalism students. So this is an interesting conversation we have yeah. every time. So I, I really respect that uh, idea of having to point to something in the picture, and I have brought that to my years of teaching. The concrete. Yeah. yeah. Uh, who were some of your classmates there? Oh, David Prifty sadly has passed away. I was just thinking about him today. Um, Monica Anderson, who he ended up marrying, uh, and uh, let's see, Paul D'Amato, Ann Fishbein, um, let's see. Uh, uh, Mark Steinmetz was oh, yeah. was there. For briefly, I guess, because he quit, didn't he? No, he, I don't think he quit. I, I think he graduated. I... He took a year off, which okay. is very unusual. Okay. So I we overlapped for one year 
Uh, Lynn Whitney, who's now at Bowling Green, wonderful photographer, great colleague. I'm sure I'm forgetting somebody, yeah. but I'll, I'll spit it out if I think about it. Did you have a high output during that time, those couple of years at Yale, working like, did they work you like crazy? Oh, my Is that goodness. How it goes? You yeah. know, I, I didn't understand that, you know, you could produce that much work. I didn't know that <laughs> it was physically, physically possible. possible. I yeah. mean, with the 8 by 10 especially, there's so many excuses for for not. And, um, the, you know, I mean, it's heavy. It's expensive. It's expensive. It's, you know cumbersome oh my gosh I gotta carry this thing through the snow on my bicycle yeah, whatever yeah. there was so many excuses but the excuses were entirely in my head because when that turn came around to cover the walls with pictures yeah. it didn't matter and it shouldn't matter how hard it was to take those pictures it should not matter all that matters is what's on the wall and now I guess on the screen yeah <laughs> and certainly in the book yeah, right, yeah, especially yeah. the thing, the, the permanent container for everything, right? Yeah. Yeah. What happened after you finished up at Yale? What did you do with yourself? Where did you go? Well, I'll tell you what, that, as much as I said I, you know, didn't go to Yale to go to Yale necessarily, that degree really helped me. I got a job teaching yeah. at, a, at a college, uh, 25 years old, in a tenure-track position. Right at, on. Uh, SUNY up in Oneonta, mind you, I had to learn how to drive, and uh, <laughs> it's, it was a really hard place for a 25-year-old single woman to land. How is, far is Oneonta from where you grew up? I mean, well, it's, it's Oneonta in New York. is smack yeah. in the middle of New York State yeah. and surrounded by nothing, and uh, I shouldn't say that. It's surrounded by everything, but nothing I had ever seen before, yeah. uh, and about four hours north of New York City, four and a half maybe from where I grew up. Yeah, it was, I had, I had never lived someplace where a car was required. I didn't learn, I didn't know how to drive. So, um, and I, I'd never lived any place that didn't have people outside all the time. Yeah. People were inside. Yeah. <laughs> so is it rural there? It's rural. Yeah, yeah. Okay. And I was, um, you know, desperate to find some subject because I was sure. interested in photographing yeah, people. Yeah. And, um, you can't just teach. You've got to keep doing that thing. Oh, no, thing. heck no. As I said, it was the air and the food. Photographing was, I could not right, be without right. that. So uh, I was driving around one day and looking for something or somebody to photograph in my Honda Civic. And I saw all these people sprawled out on the lawn and pulled over the car and, you know, uh, said, I'm a, I'm a teacher at the college there and I'm a photographer and can I take your picture and it ended up being um, Barbara and her family yeah, and yeah. that led to uh, 15 years of work Yeah. and again I was That's about crazy. 25 years old 26 maybe when, when I finally met them So. and they became my you know my community there yeah. this enormous family so how it's just it's so interesting that I mean you were driving looking for pictures or yes. were you yeah and then, well, that's that's something I'm curious about. How did you, at, at this point, did, did it require courage on your part to stop and, and approach strangers on, you know, in, in an unfamiliar part of the world for you? Yeah, I think, yeah. Uh, you know, you, you, I just reach a point of desperation. Yeah, so to push it, through. There, there's yeah. just not a choice anymore. I'm just going to, you know, throw myself off a cliff if I don't take a picture. So uh, finally, there's somebody. 
And then, and then the worst thing that can happen is you walk away and just carry on looking for the next picture. Almost if, never yeah. happens, yeah. which is the remarkable that's part. That's amazing. That's yeah. that's important too. I mean, that that's like an, an inspirational chunk there. It's just, you know, I think a lot of people, you know, maybe young people or, or getting started out might hesitate for one reason or another, but to hear you say that it works out most of the time. Most of the time. You just have to, you know, if you're asking all of the time, then you can get pictures all of the time. Yeah, I think that, um, you know, perhaps telling the truth is a good thing. Uh, and I've just always done that. I'm not a very good liar. So, you know, I was uh, I was um, a teacher. And then I, uh, before that, I was a student. And, and everything seemed to work, you know, being a student, being a teacher, um, being a photographer, uh, you know, being very clear about what it is I'm interested in, if I could uh, at the time. Of course, something's pulling me over. Uh, I photograph people. There are no people around. You have many people here. May I photograph some of them? Yeah, you know, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, whatever, whatever the truth is, yeah, uh, yeah. seems to work, has seemed to work for me. Yeah. So how is it that this first interaction with this family turned into 15 years? Well, I took uh, lots of pictures. Uh, okay, well, of course they said, yeah, you could take some pictures. And I went back to the car mm-hmm. and got the gigantic camera. And uh, amazingly, they were, you know, willing to go along for that ride. Yeah. Was there a reaction to just the, the sight of a view camera? Was it something that, I feel like it's something that still most people haven't really seen in, in, in person. I really remember. Yeah, now, yeah. I think that this was 86, so there were no telephones, and not everybody even had a camera in those yeah, days. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Uh, so there, <laughs> there were telephones. Build, yeah. there, were no, there were no telephone cameras. And... Um, so, no, I don't, I guess so. I mean, what, what's more interesting to me, frankly, is that the pictures, you know, look the way they do right, right from the beginning with, with Barbara and her family, you know, that first picture where, you know, all those kids are being kind of held with those hands. I mean, those hands were there because these kids certainly had never posed for a big, a picture with a big camera. The adults understood that they had to stay still. Yeah. And those hands are there to keep them yeah, in place. Yeah. And of course, those hands look like they're there because these people love them or care about them or maybe they are just, you know, choking them. Um, and then, you know, I see this thing happen with the hands, which is a reaction to the big camera. And then uh, perhaps I asked Barbara to put one of her hands up to her chest to have this, you know, physical thing happen in the picture, this, this, this dance of these hands. So then Barbara's gesture might suggest some kind of meaning, which was born of a formal uh, concern on my part. So that's pretty fascinating to me. Uh, and I do have the outtakes. I managed to keep the outtakes. I don't keep outtakes as a rule uh, from that first day. And uh, I really moved around a lot and took a lot of pictures of, you know, one single situation, that particular picture I'm talking about, yeah. which is the first picture in, in Treadwell. Was it was it lightning for you? I mean, it seems like, of, of course, you went back and you continued to go back. But was that, was there excitement for you looking or, I mean, I, of, oh cor- gosh, of course, yes. at the time, but yes, uh, I would yes. guess that after you process the stuff, maybe I would guess it was exciting. Okay, more than more that. than lightning. There was that that confusion thing that I was talking yeah, about. Like yeah. I had, um, you know, come from a family that cherished education. Yeah, this was a family of 
21 people. And during the course of the 15 years, I witnessed the first high school graduation. Whoa. Which was a beautiful thing. Yeah. Um, so it's, it wasn't something that the family necessarily encouraged uh, or didn't encourage. Let me make that simply clear. Um, and uh, yet, uh, uh, you know, I, I didn't judge negatively. I, th- this was a beautiful, loving, open to me, you know, very open to me. Uh, family, they opened, they opened their arms for me in a community that was, uh, you know, less than, how can I put it? I wouldn't say Oneonta was unwelcoming, but I was, you know, the youngest faculty by far at that time. Things have changed, I'm sure. But at yeah, that time, yeah. you know, my colleagues were, you know, people who were definitely old enough to be my parents, sure. uh, who were mostly men, and uh, who had, you know, concerns that they, they were not living to do, by and large, they weren't, you know, needing to do their work the way I was. You know, they were happily married with their houses and their families, and they had many concerns that were not just foreign to me, but I was really probably rebelling against because of that before-mentioned requirement, familial expectation. (laughs) Um, And and one one thing about the... The Treadwell pictures in particular, I know that they're made with a view camera, but they almost seem like hand camera pictures to me. There's something about them that seems like loose and, and like, they, like almost like they're quickly made. And not that they lack any sort of, you know, formality, but that it almost seems like you are working like with a, a crazy precision and like ferocity with this this big camera. Like you you're, have such control of it that you can make these easy pictures with, with a big camera. Well, thank you, you for that. That's a very nice compliment. At least I think it is. Um, well, it seems like uh, it's an impressive feat to me. Yeah. Well, okay. I photographed primarily one person. Barbara was the center yeah. character in that book and, and her 13 siblings and their kids and her parents but primarily Barbara for 15 years. And, you know, you don't have to be a a genius to, when you stick to one subject for that long, to not want to repeat yourself. Most people would be bored. So uh, by sticking to a subject, I'm, you know, putting myself in a position to reinvent how I take that picture every time because I'm not going to be satisfied with repeating myself. And And it'll be, you know glaringly obvious that I'm repeating myself. Um, So I had to shake up the form as much as I could to keep myself engaged as a practitioner. So when I talk about this work, of course I acknowledge that there's a relationship with a person and her family, which also has had evolved over the 15 years until her untimely passing. So uh, that's something that we can spend an hour talking about, or we can talk about the pictures, but we're talking about the pictures. Right, right. So as a practitioner, I managed to keep myself uh, engaged and and surprised by figuring out uh, new ways to take the pictures. So involving, for example, maybe movement on the part of 
the subjects, uh, or even in the case of the last pictures of Barbara, where the focus is blown completely. Uh, and there's one example of that in Treadwell itself. But uh, I, I would say that what happened for me during those 15 years, which I still crave and uh, still happens for me, but not as frequently because I have this many more years of experience taking pictures, that I would look at pictures that I made, uh, and, and, and I hope for this for today too, and not know if it's actually a good picture, simply put, because it would be something I'd not seen before, at least come out of my big bunch of pictures. Um, and so, uh, you know, for instance, that first picture with all the hands, I thought, you know, originally, and maybe some people would agree that it was corny, that it was, uh, sappy and, you know, that it was overly romantic. Uh, and, and it was actually a student of mine in Oneonta who saw proof of that and said, yeah. this is an amazing picture. This yeah. is a great picture. Yeah. So for me, that is... That is the ultimate. That's the thing that will get me absolutely excited about going out again. That's happened with even commercial work. It's happened with the baseball work. For instance, shooting into the sun, which Kodak tells you never to do, <laughs> and then holding that negative up to the light bulb when it's dripping in chemistry and coming close to throwing it into the trash and having that picture end up on the cover of the New York Times magazine. Yeah. So... Um, Yikes. Uh, I, something maybe about also this process that we can't delete images so quickly as we can in digital that makes us hold on to things that we doubt, that give us the opportunity to learn from them and also yeah. see that maybe, maybe you know, that mistake is not so bad or maybe that what we might see is romance because we are infusing that with our memory of the experience of having made the picture is more complex than what we're able to bring to the viewing of the finished object. Right on. One thing I was curious about with, with a project like Treadwell spanning 15 years, and you actually answered my question before, um, was, was how you managed to wrap up something like that. And you mentioned that, that Barbara had died, which was something that... I didn't know. Um, oh, that's what this last book, yeah, that, uh, the Nazarelli book called Barbara. Yeah, the, yeah, the, on the bottom were, of the stack. Yeah. yeah. Have you flipped through that? I have not. No, no. Because no. these pictures but I think were I've... all made the last year of her life. Well, and she was what, in bed. What happened? She, Barbara had uh, diabetes and ultimately died with a heart attack. Um, very much a victim of her body, her metabolism, she couldn't control her weight. I really never saw her overeat, and she just kept getting bigger. Uh, and um, finally, she, the last year of her life, she was uh, in, in, in bed mostly. And that particular, during the, the, the 15 years that I photographed, the family moved 33 times. Holy shit. They've been they've been in the same place for quite a while now, uh, but um, at that point, uh, her bedroom was uh, in a farmhouse that was dug into a hillside, so had no windows. Yeah. So I had to introduce. I brought in um, some clamp lamps, you know, some Home Depot ten dollar yeah. clamp yeah. lamps, and and took some pictures uh, with that. And again, uh, even these pictures uh, were very much uh, infused with surprise for me in how they ended up looking. Um, but they become much more about uh, 
my acrobatics with the pictures, picture making, I think. Had, had you made pictures like these before? No, then the early, the, more about what I could do with the lights and the camera because she was sleeping through many of the pictures as opposed to the earlier pictures, which, which were so highly collaborative. Yeah. Were you in Oneonta for the duration of this project? Had you, or was that a place that you ended up uh, leaving your teaching position and traveling back to to visit with the family? B. Yeah. I, I, I moved to Colorado where I spent nine years. Uh, I left my tenured job in Oneonta at 90, at, at, uh, in 98. I was uh, 38. I had started there at 25, and I just, I started uh, getting invited to do editorial work. Yeah. So I decided to, uh, you know, make a career of just being a photographer full time and, yeah. and, and see how, how that would go. But I, uh, I did that for about 10 years. I had an agent. Um, and I, let's see. Did it fit, did it fit for you? Oh, did you like yeah. it? Yeah. I loved it. I loved it. And I made, you know, to be frank, I made a good living. And I say that now because I, I don't know that that would be the case now, not at least going into it with an 8x10 camera, for goodness sake. But uh, back then, you know, the editors knew my work from the art world, by and large. Uh, and um, so I was being hired to do work that looked like my work. It, it couldn't have been a, a better scenario. Yeah, yeah. Uh, do, so I did that for about 10 years. Do what now. Andrea does and... It's it's like do, be yourself and and do what you what you do. Yeah. It's yeah. an amazing thing. I mean, I, amazing gift. It was it was great. It was great, and I still occasionally do assignment work. So, but I did return to teaching, and I have yeah. tenure a second time around at Drexel University. When you went to Colorado, was that for um, a, a sort of change of scenery, or did you? <laughs> well, uh, what was, in the end, yeah. I did the very old-fashioned thing, and I got married, uh -huh. and I moved where my husband was living, and he see, actually yeah. didn't have, he, uh, he was a professor and did not have the, um, I would say, mobility that I had to make a living another way. I got you. Uh, but Wait. it was a fascinating change of scenery, and I, you know, brought a couple of projects and books, and friendships and experience that I wouldn't trade for the world. Um, but in the end, I did want to come back to uh, the Northeast, and there was a divorce. So uh, that was kind of the, uh, the, the signal to uh, it was time to, to leave and come back to what really feels like home. So I applied for jobs in the Northeast, decided to go back to uh, academia. Um, I... I was approaching, well, let's put it this, let, let me think about this. It was probably in my late 40s, and uh, the editorial world had me living on planes a lot. Yeah. Uh, hmm. And, um, well, you know about that, you know, planes, hotel rooms, a lot of it. It's, it's, it's a lot of work. I mean, the moving around is a lot of work. When you were your busiest doing the editorial stuff, how, how much were you traveling? I would say I was gone at least a third of the time, at least, maybe yeah, more, yeah. maybe half. And, you and know, the still rest juggling all of, all of the, the personal work, I Oh, imagine. my gosh, yeah. yes. You know, exhibitions and books and all of that. And workshops. I always did like teaching. But I did finally miss teaching terribly. So I, uh, I, I was very envious of my then-husband uh, every September. 
Um, so I. It's time to go back. What am I doing? Right, exactly. <laughs> and of course, you know, there was, you know, when you are making your living doing assignment work, there's no such thing as a day off. I missed so many birthdays uh, and holidays uh, because that's, you know, these assignments come when they come. You gotta, you gotta go. So that that's the hard part. But yeah. I would, oh my goodness, wouldn't trade it for the world. I met some incredible heroes of mine: Billie Jean King, uh, Muhammad Ali, uh, a couple of folks from the um, Little Rock Nine. These are some of the highlights. Yeah. There are many, many yeah. more, and many, many people who are not famous who were so inspiring. It was right like on. a really great life. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then still from time to time you'll say yes to something I or do. other. Yeah. I did. Most recently I uh, did a cover story, for, and this was most recently now, over a year ago, for the New York Times Magazine. I photographed uh, Theo Padnos, who uh, had been a um, prisoner in Syria for 22 months and was released. So I spent a weekend with, with uh, Theo and his mom in the middle of Vermont, I mean, what, you know, what an opportunity, what a life-changing experience. Uh, I I would love to, you know, of course, uh, be able to take assignments for the rest of my life. It must be an exciting thing to sort of be, um, you know, put face-to-face with somebody interesting. Um, I would imagine that most of the time when somebody has written something about somebody, they're, they're, you know, they're interesting enough that that something's been written. So they're, of course, going to be... I would imagine, um, oftentimes, a wonderful person to visit with, and, and maybe to borrow and borrow from and share with. Yes, yeah. yes, on absolutely, absolutely right. Yeah. Um, well, I wonder if if you could tell me a little bit about um, the things that you've been photographing lately. So I've been working. I've been uh, spending about four months a year in Italy for the past eight or nine years. That's where my yeah. boyfriend lives, and I am in Italy working as a photographer when I'm not at Drexel. So it's this wonderful chunk of time when I have really very little distraction from doing work. So I, uh, I photograph him. I, uh, I have been photographing my family. Uh, I photograph whatever I want to photograph, um, whether or not it makes any sense. But uh, specifically, I've been working... Uh, at a horse clinic uh, outside of Bologna, and uh, that's going to be wow. my next book with yeah. with Tiz. The the surgeon is also an artist. His name is Fabio Torre. In fact, he's going to open a show, a clamp art of his work, uh, in April. Uh, but he is a world-renowned horse surgeon and a friend of my boyfriend. So we were having uh, dinner at his house and looking at his work in his studio upstairs from the clinic. And I said, I'd love a tour of the clinic, the operating rooms. And there were these recovery boxes that were spectacular where the horses Mm. sleep uh, after the operation. They they have usually a few to 15, maybe 15 minutes uh, when they're still under anesthesia. And uh, I want to photograph the horses in those boxes. Uh, I got that, 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 you know, bugging me immediately. Yeah, yeah. And uh, so a, it is a technically ridiculous thing to do with an 8x10 camera. Uh, there's so little time. Uh, once the horse starts flickering his ear, uh, the, the doctors just, you know, slam shut the doors. You're mm-hmm. done. Yeah. Uh, but there is something about that adrenaline and that challenge, which I think 
is informing the pictures. Uh, so once again, it's you know pushing the camera beyond its limits, harkening back to what you were saying about the Treadwell pictures, yeah, I yeah. believe. And I've also been um, photographing the surgical tools, uh, both before and after the procedures. Mm -hmm. And the titles of the pictures are very important because the titles of the horses include the horse's name, the name of the breed, uh, the type of operation, and um, the date of the operation. So, so they're very factual, but they also contain maybe um, some irony or humor or sadness. Uh, so a, a horse's name might be, for example, Funny Boy, and the uh, the, the operation is a castration. So, uh, you know, in the end, there's nothing terribly funny about that. But uh, these are very, very... Uh, Valuable horses, often race horses, very powerful, beautiful animals, uh, often show show jumpers, um, and uh, they're very well taken care of. But they are in a state of vulnerability, which I think, you know, any human can relate to, uh, and and also, of course, they're technically still <laughs> they're yeah. still, which makes it physically possible for me to photograph them with the big camera, yeah. although. Very challenging. I, and I imagine you're set up to do everything you need to do to process and print over in Italy. I and am. Working up, yeah. I am. My boyfriend is a, a neurologist and a photographer, so he has a dark room that I use. Wonderful. Yeah. That's great. Yeah. Right on. When do you go back? I typically spend the fall term there. Yeah. I teach here through the summer, and I go end of August through and I come back for mummer for the mummer's parade to photograph there, which is another ongoing project I've been doing. It's a it's a, right now it's a nine year project, but it's one day a year. That's it's great. Yeah, take takes nine years to get nine days of photographs. Ah, yeah. for sure. Yeah. Are they big fourteen hour days for you? Are you are you they're, out? Like they are. Well, there's not four, there aren't fourteen hours of light. Of light that time of yeah, year. Yeah, but yeah. you know, by the time they get finished with their parade, no. But uh, typically, about seven hours of shooting. Yeah. How how is it corralling um, the rowdy gents of the Mummers Festival? Challenging. It's a little bit like you know, hoping the horses will stay still. You know, for my picture. Challenging. <laughs> It's challenging. You know, it's a challenge that I still, you know, it still excites me. Yeah. I mean, maybe at some point I'll just be too decrepit to be able to do it, but it's it's physically very challenging, in fact, because it's a very crowded, rowdy space, and I've got that big camera. Right. Yeah. Right. And are you are you pulling people out of the parade, or are you yes. sort of okay, okay? Yeah, they're they're actually they're done with the parade. They're just hanging around. Oh, I around. see, I see. Yeah, sort of a party. The party Gigantic continues. Party. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And is it? Have you found that just your presence in um, will sort of facilitate more people who who want to be photographed? Do people sort of volunteer, or do you go after people who are specifically interesting to you? Actually, both, really. Yeah. But there's also this component, which is that I've been doing it for enough years that I always, always give pictures to the people I photograph. I mean, that's just yeah, you go back. somebody. Yeah. Well, I mail them, yeah, and yeah, they'll yeah. remember me from the year before. Sure, sure. And generally, I must say, people 
seem to like pictures of themselves. So uh, there you have it. Yeah. So, so they will, you know, vouch for me with their buddies also. That's happened. I see. Yeah. What's what's the how's the atmosphere? If you weren't a photographer and had gone there and I was visiting from out of town, I was like, what's what's up with this this festival? Like what's what's the vibe there? It's you very know? um it's very community oriented. So uh it's mostly the people who live there. Uh there are various groups. I'm interested in the group that's called the wenches. They're men who dress okay. in women's dresses. Mm-hmm. And uh, these are not men who would dress as women any other day of the year. Um, so there's that, let's call it irony. There's a lot of drinking. Uh, I don't drink at, while I'm working. Uh, so I'm an outcast for that. I'm an outcast because I'm not part of that community. Mm-hmm. But it's a community that's not completely unlike, bringing this full circle, the neighborhood I I grew up in. Um, you know, a lot of blue-collar workers, people who are very tied mm-hmm. to their families and their history yeah, and their yeah. background, for better or for worse. And uh, so, so I am an outsider, but I, I definitely understand the culture, because it's a culture that's quite familiar. So I think that people know that when they talk to me. And and what is it precisely that, aside from New Year's Day, that they're celebrating? I really have to do some research about yeah. that. This is, I, 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 I don't feel equipped to answer yeah, that. Yeah, sure, sure. There's a museum here. They're devoted to the mummers. I haven't even been to that yet, I'm ashamed to say. Uh, but I think they're having a good time mostly you know I'm often attracted to subjects that I don't understand that make me uncomfortable probably the best example would be the baseball players and and it's and it's the subject I can talk about because it's it's done but when I was in the middle of it I couldn't talk and and these are pictures of minor league baseball players in in New York in In, Oneonta in fact it's one of the projects I did there uh, in my first book uh, and the book, by the way, the project that that brought Kathy Ryan uh, to to my show in New York, and 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 she is the editor of photography at the New yeah, York Times Magazine. Mm-hmm. You know, started hiring me to do work. So uh, it was a very important project for me. But mostly, it was important because I uh, was photographing these um, beautiful uh, young men. Uh, who were also, you know, exhibiting some behavior that I wasn't comfortable with. And uh, I went in there, I was, let's put it this way, about 10 years older than they were. I was about 30 years old, and they were about 20. So I wasn't quite, you know, young enough to be a girlfriend, not young enough, not old enough to be a mother. I wasn't at all interested or knowledge about, knowledgeable about baseball. Uh, but there was something, you know, at once very attractive about that subject as, uh, you know, heterosexual woman, uh, and also repulsive. So I knew that if I was put off by the behavior that I didn't support, uh, 
um, that I was also being prejudiced and judgmental. So, I, so the way that I dealt with that, which uh, was to to you know again take the bull by the horns and 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 look straight in the eye of that which was confusing and 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 putting me off. Uh, and you know, in the end, what you know I understood more uh, was you know group mentality, how some people felt that they had to behave certain ways to be part of the club. Um, and like any group, there were wonderful people and some not such wonderful such wonderful people. So um, that that is a body work I can I can talk about because it's far behind me. But I think that, you know, for instance, the horses have uh, you know the same kind of discomfort. I'm 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 there at the operations. You know they're bloody. These incredibly, you know, these are like the, the most valuable, powerful, you know, generally in perfect health horses that have these things wrong with them that have to be fixed, and they're they're rendered so vulnerable and and helpless, and and I and I see them cut open and castrated and. And I can't help but think about, uh, you know, what I'm looking at uh, in terms of, you know, any living being, uh, including humans. So there, you know, there's a compassion that I feel that uh, that I need to, again, look in the face of this thing that which is very, very painful and, and difficult and scary, especially as I get older and, and um, I've had my own experiences uh, in operating rooms. Does that make sense? Yeah. Okay. So, uh, and of course, uh, you know, this kind of interest and approach, looking at something that is beyond my comprehension, is something I have been bringing, and now more than ever, to the mummer community. So, um, okay. So, one example is, you know, I'm seeing a little bit more blackface used uh, with the wenches. And it's, of course, illegal. And that this was something that you've seen in the past? Yes, but, but I'm seeing a little bit more now. Man, what the fuck? Exactly. So I, you know, I asked one mummer, I said, well, why, you know, why are you doing this? Now, I think without the camera, uh, I may not have had that ability to ask that question. You know, it yeah. might have, it might have seemed... Um, uh, really, like I was an outsider. I think the camera, right, you know, yeah, creates yeah. this intimacy, mm -hmm. which permits these kinds of conversations. His answer was frightening, which was, "I'm doing this because I'm told I can't." Hmm. Uh, and I With, felt that it wasn't an informed answer. No, I don't think he fully understood what he was doing, um, and how that could be so hurtful to people. I don't see how empathy is just just the most common, you know, trying to imagine how other people might feel seems to be absent from so many people's daily lives. It's just I, I, I can't agree with you more, but 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 I I don't want to have I don't want to have zero empathy for for that, those that people, yeah. for that guy. Yeah. And photography is the only method I know that gives me entree into that life in a way that I might be able to see the complexity there, understand that point of view, and feel some empathy. 
and that is that's power that's so I so I feel I feel that now more than ever, in this political environment, I I need to be doing that. Andrea, thanks so much. Nice talking to you. Thank you. This episode was recorded February third, two thousand seventeen, in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Special thanks this week to Sean Faith. Our theme music is by Daniel Bachman. You can follow us on Instagram at the.halftone. If you enjoy the show, take a moment to leave a review in iTunes. It helps a lot. And for more information on the show or to listen to older episodes, visit www.thehalftone.org.
Yeah, you did that for one of your uh-huh. last book, right? Both books. Same I've place? shot at the same. Yeah. I've, I've written like parts of it at the so same place. So do you have a, cab- a cabin? I don't have it. It's like these ladies or, I mean, like a place rent that you it go to, to that yeah. or, like your spot. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it works there. Yeah. I, I've been productive there. Once you find yeah. a place that you can be productive. <laughs> That's so exciting. Yeah. Well, hey, thanks so much for meeting me and uh, thanks for chatting. Sure, thanks. This episode was recorded July 30th, 2016 in San Francisco, California. Our music is by Daniel Bachman. I'm on Instagram at Eric Marth. And for more information on the show or to check out older episodes, log on to www.thehalftone.org.